Let's pray together. Jesus, we, uh, as we just sang together, we declare that you are better than anything we seek here on earth. Jesus, you are better than riches and comfort and any temporary victory we might win in different ways. Jesus, you are better. It is you that we desire. And Lord, we declare, as we just sang again, our, uh, our allegiance to you. You are our only king. And Lord, also in that song, there's this request. Right? Make my heart believe. Would you help us believe that that is true? Because so often our hearts are cold or hard or fickle. And so Lord, we need you to do your work in our hearts this morning to, to surrender fully to you and believe that you are good. And so we pray as we turn to your word now that you would do exactly that. We love you, and it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, welcome to FBC, and good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors. If I haven't met you yet, just want to welcome you and say that we're, we're so glad that you are here. I want to invite you to open up your Bible with me, if you have one, to John chapter 12. Uh, verse 12 is where we're going to be starting. Uh, Pastor Ian just read uh, the start of the section for us, but we're going to be jumping in as we uh, continue our sermon series called Follow Me, Walking Through the Gospel of John. Little by little, we're uh, picking up where we left off last week, so we're in Chapter 12, verse 12, John, of course, is written late in the first century. It's uh, one of the four Gospels, the main accounts of the life of Jesus. Again, unanimous uh, testimony of the early church is that this Gospel is written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest followers. Uh, I just also want to say this morning, as we get started, that um, as your pastor, I I love you guys, and I was thinking about you this week. Amber and I talk a lot about how glad we are to be here at FBC. Um, in, in ministry, I get the chance to talk to a lot of uh, other pastors uh, locally and also friends who are pastoring in different parts of the country, and uh, after those conversations, I'm always struck by how uh, grateful I am to be at FBC, and Amber and I talk about that so often that we just, we love you. We love being here, and, and yes, we have our problems, and you know, every church has their stuff that we're working through, but man, we are just so glad to be here, that this is our church family, that we get to do life with each of you, and uh, we love you and wanted you to know that. Um, oh, yeah. Was... Thank you. Um, with that, I'm going to talk a little bit about Disney movies to start, naturally. <laughs> And, and I realize, I realize that sometimes when I talk about Disney movies from up front, I haven't gotten any angry emails about it, but I, I think I ruffle some feathers sometimes because sometimes I'm a little, a bit of a curmudgeon, you know, when it comes to Disney movies. And, and I mention, I, I point out how some of the messages in Disney movies uh, aren't always the best messages, aren't always true or helpful or aligned with Scripture. And so I point that out sometimes, and maybe, maybe that's hard for some of us. But I wanted you to know, I didn't want you to, to misunderstand me, we still love Disney movies, okay? So in the Scrayback household, we, we watch Disney movies, and you know our kids have seen Disney movies. And actually, one of my favorite movies of all time, not just favorite Disney movies, but favorite movies, is The Lion King. Yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. That deserves an amen. And um, it's fantastic, not just because 
of, uh, well, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, so you might be like, well, here we go again, Pastor Matt on his little Lion King thing. But stay with me, okay? This is helpful. Not only is it powerful music and great characters, and Timon and Pumbaa are still the greatest Disney sidekicks of all time, without question, right? They're at, at the top. But also, if you look at the arc of the story, there are so many connections to Scripture, there are so many parts and themes of the story of the Lion King that, that tie into the message of Scripture. Think about it. The, the main tension or, or plot, you know, drama in the Lion King is that things were, were good there on the plains of Africa, right? The animals are flourishing in the animal kingdom and things are going well. But then uh, the king, Mufasa, is, is killed. He dies. Uh, the truth king, or excuse me, the heir to the throne, Simba, is led into exile, chased away. So he's living in a, a far-off land for a while, you know, singing songs with a warthog and a meerkat. Meanwhile, Scar is on the throne at home, and things go terribly wrong, right? There's decay and darkness and death in the land. We have a picture, a screenshot from the movie, if you remember it, right? That used to be green and beautiful and everything was plentiful. And then Scar takes over and there's decay and death and animals are complaining that there's no food. There's suffering in the land. And then the lions find out that Simba is still alive, right? And he's off in exile. And the, the hope for the land is that the king would return, is that Simba would come back and take up his rightful place on his throne and defeat the forces of evil and return peace and justice and flourishing to the land, right? So, sound, sound familiar? And eventually he does return and do exactly that. But I think we love stories like this where things are dark and broken and in need of a hero to come and fix them. We love those stories. Think about it. We see that theme in stories like that or some variation of that in so many of the books and movies and, and stories that we love. Could it be that we love those stories because they tap into and really rise out of the one true story of the world? They connect with us so much because really what they're doing is retelling in some form what is true about the world and about God. That, that things are broken and not as they should be and we need a hero, a king, to come back and fix things. Well, we've all felt this before, that things aren't as they should be. You don't have to be familiar with the Bible or to be a Christian to know that this world is broken, right? We've all experienced death, loss, especially in these past few years, right? Loss of loved ones and friends. Maybe you sense, you know, your own body breaking down. Maybe you deal with your own health concerns or financial concerns, or maybe you look in your past and there's, there's traumatic experiences in your past or in your family or in your upbringing. Maybe there's been abuse or ways you've been wronged or taken advantage of or or now you're, you're lonely, or maybe you're just fearful looking out at the future, right? not sure what the days ahead hold. Maybe you, you think about your own failures, right? How you've hurt other people, failed other people, done things you wish you never would have done. Or you just read the news and right, you see all the stories of whether it's war or 
soon-to-be war or famine or whatever the metaverse is or cryptocurrency or who knows what else is going on in the world, right? But you look at things out in the world and you're like, things are not as they should be. It's not supposed to be like this. See, the Bible affirms this reality. The Bible shows us over and over again that we live in a fallen, broken world, a world that's marked by sin, a world that's marked by death, that things are in need of fixing, and we need someone to make it right. God's people throughout history have felt this, right? If you look in the Old Testament and you read the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies, you see that the people of God have been longing for a king, a a Messiah, a deliverer, a hero who would come and destroy sin and the devil and bring about justice and peace and rest for the land and save the people from oppressors. So with that longing fresh in our minds, that hope fresh in our minds, Look again at John chapter 12, what we see happening in verse 12. We'll read it again. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So we pick up the story. Uh, After last week, right, the day after Jesus was the guest of honor at this dinner party, right, chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and chapter 12, early in the early verses of this chapter, we see Jesus is the guest of honor at this party, and he's anointed with this expensive perfume, and he's honored in such an extravagant way, and the next day are these events where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, And there's this great crowd there that heard about it and they gather. They were gathering for Passover and yet they hear Jesus is coming to the city and they draw near to him. So think about some of these details of the setting that paints the picture for us so we understand the significance of what's going on. First, notice where all of this is taking place. Verse 12 says, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, so this is nearing Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. It was the center of the people's uh, political life, their religious life. It was the center of their hopes for a Messiah, right? It was believed that the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Hero who would come would reign from Jerusalem. And so Jesus is heading towards the city of the king. Now, in the ancient world, often a king, after a great victory or battle, would return to their city victorious, and the people of the city would kind of gather outside. They would come out in celebration for what the king had done, and they would kind of escort the king back into the city and have this kind of processional leading back into the city. And it very much feels like what we're reading about here, the people greeting Jesus with celebration as he comes to the city of the king. Now, notice when this is all taking place. What does verse 12 tell us? They had gathered for the festival. It's speaking of Passover. So the people had come to Jerusalem, this yearly feast, this yearly celebration where Jews would make this pilgrimage to the capital city and and the population of Jerusalem would swell and they would come to remember how God delivered their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. 
Right? You remember the story from the book of Exodus with Moses and Pharaoh and let my people go and the Red Sea and how, how God rescued his people and delivered them out of slavery? It was at this time of year that it will be fresh in people's minds. God delivered us once, he's going to do it again. We have these oppressors again, the Romans who are in power. And so they were hopeful, they were eager at this time of year especially that a Messiah, a king would appear and take back his throne and fix things. And it's here that we read about these events that we often look to on Palm Sunday, right? The people have palm branches. It's the, the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life, right? Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter Sunday. We're just a few days away from the cross. And the people then would be wondering, could this Jesus be the one? Could this Jesus be the king we've been waiting for? The Messiah, the one who will bring peace the one who will bring justice, the one who will throw off the oppressive Romans. And think about what we've seen so far, this rabbi from Galilee amassing quite a following who's healed the sick, he's raised the dead, he's commanded nature and the natural world obeyed, he's cast out demons, he's taught with authority. I mean, he's doing all the sorts of things you would expect a Messiah to do. And now he's entering the capital city of Jerusalem, the city of the king. Now, notice what the crowd does. Verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They greet him with palm branches. Palm branches could be used in uh, entrance ceremony for a king, historically. Palm branches were kind of a symbol at the time of Jewish nationalism. So as they're grabbing these palm branches, there's this kind of nationalistic pride welling up in them for the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Hope, again, for a deliverer was rising. Also, what does the crowd say? Not only do they take these palm branches as a sign of, of, again, the Jewish nation and their deliverance, but also, verse 13, they say, Hosanna. They're crying out, blessed is... deliverance to one who they believe can rescue them. Saying, this is the guy. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a direct quote from the Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 118. And not only that, but they make it quite clear. So they say what? Blessed is the king. It's him. Blessed is the king of Israel. It connects back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises King David back then that he would raise up for David someone from his line who would be king and who would rule forever and of his kingdom there would be no end. Remember King David, David and Goliath, David, David and Bathsheba, David. God promised that David, I will raise up a king who will reign forever on your throne. Now the people are saying the king is here. So put it all together. This is at the city of the king Jesus is about to enter. It's at the time of year, Passover, when people were expecting a king or hoping for a king or most looking for a king to return. 
There's symbols, the palm branches of his reign. There's words of praise declaring him as king. I mean, last week Jesus was anointed sort of privately at this dinner party with perfume and honor as the king. And look how he responds. Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey, as all this is happening, sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. In our passage this morning, Jesus doesn't say really anything or do anything, but this one act here is significant. It says he sits on a young donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that's quoted here. See, your king is coming seated on his cult. With this act, Jesus is a Notice, he doesn't rebuke the crowds. He doesn't correct the crowds. Yep, that's me. I'm the king in America, right? And so, you know, kings for us is like, "Mm, that's not sure. But think about what this would mean in the ancient world, a king. It's not just authority, though it is that. It's not security. It was a king who would protect your land from foreign nations and armies that would want to kill you. It was a king who would ensure that justice was done in the land and people weren't taken advantage of. If you had a good king, it would mean stability. It would mean safety. It would mean life could flourish under his reign. If you had a bad king, then the opposite could be true. So all this would be going in their minds. The Testament scriptures being fulfilled, this eternal sense, the kingdom of God, one who would reign forever, Once and for all, deal with evil, fix the problems in the world. And to all of these hopes, Jesus essentially says, yep, that's me. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Old Testament. I'm the one you should trust in. I'm the one you should place your hope in. I'm the one you should worship. You want peace. You want rest, eternal hope, security, justice, forgiveness. Look to me. Only the king can provide these things. Now I realize that today, well, this at any time would be a big claim. Again, it's a big flex. It's a big claim. A big 
statement Jesus is making. But I realize today, many of us would object. Many people in our world would object to such a claim, saying that's too much. That's too exclusive. That's too narrow. Jesus, to say that you and you alone are the one who can bring this sort of life and peace and flourishing and joy... Some today would be offended at such a claim to say that there's only one way, only one person who can do all of this. It's one of the most common objections uh, we see today that I hear to Christianity and following Jesus. It's too exclusive. right? Only one true faith, only one way to God, only one way the world's going to get fixed, this Jesus Maybe you've asked that question yourself, had it asked to you, wondered about it. There's a number of ways we could respond and think through it, but the one thing I do want to say this morning is simply the observation that everyone makes truth claims, right? Every worldview makes a truth claim about God or the lack of God, about humanity, about where we came from, about where we're going, right? Truth by nature is exclusive. And so every worldview, every religion, every approach to spiritual things is exclusive. It's not as if Christians by themselves make exclusive claims. Think about it. Buddhists have their claims about how the world works and what spiritual realities are true and about what comes after this life. Those who practice Islam have their claims about what is true, what is true about God and who he is and what he is like. Mormons have their claims about who God is and who Jesus is and what that means for us. Atheists have their claims about the lack of a God and how we got here and so on. Christians have their claims. Or we say, hey, here's what is true about life and about reality and about God and about humans and about the afterlife. So my, my point here is simply there's no avoiding making exclusive claims. We all do that. And if, if you're here this morning, you're like, well, wait a second, Pastor. I'm a modern, you know, enlightened person, and we've moved beyond all that exclusive truth claim stuff, and I think kind of everybody can be true. Right? Everything can be true at the same time, and so I'm a very, you know, very tolerant person, and so I kind of see all of it fits, and we don't have to say one or the other. But think, it, it, that claim might sound humble at first. Right? It, it might sound like, hey, I, you know, everybody is right, no need to worry about it. But as you're saying that, realize what you're saying is, hey, the Mormons got it wrong, and the Buddhists got it wrong, and those who practice Islam got it wrong, and the Christians got it wrong, and the atheists got it wrong, and, and all, everyone in history who came before me, basically, got it wrong about spiritual realities, and I now have this enlightened understanding of spiritual things that all the other major faith traditions in the history of the world have missed, but now I see it clearly. Do you see that? So even in trying to make a quote, tolerant claim about spiritual realities, that claim in itself is, I have found the exclusive way to view spiritual things. And I'm right, and, and those kind of narrow, exclusive Christians are wrong, which you see the, the irony and the contradiction in that. So my simple point is, again, we all make truth claims. 
And so it's not about, well, who's narrow and who's exclusive and who is not. We all make our truth claims. The question is, whose claims are true? That's what we have to discern. When Jesus says all this and claims all this, is he true? Is he right? Because make no mistake, he's claiming to be king. He's claiming to be the one that we should place our hope and trust in. He's claiming to be worthy of our worship. He says, if you're hungry and you're thirsty, come to me. If you're tired and weary, come to me. If you're lost, I can find you. If you're dead, I alone can make you alive. You need a shepherd. You need someone to lead you and feed you and protect you. Come to me. Not only this, but someone to lay down their life for you and take away your sin. And so the question is, will we believe the claims of Jesus? That he is who he says he is. That he's right. That whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But I want you to see here in the text that there's a little more to this passage than meets the eye, right? So we're confronted with this claim of Jesus as king. But notice what happens next in verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Okay, there's some encouragement there for you. If you. When we read the Bible and something happens and we don't understand it, you're not alone, okay? At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So notice, while while all this is happening, these events of Palm Sunday, Jesus coming to the city, Hosanna, palm branches, all that, the text tells us the disciples didn't connect all the dots in their minds as to the significance of these events. What it meant that Jesus was entering Jerusalem in this way. There was more going on than they understood And it says it wasn't until when that they realized it. Verse 16. What is until after Jesus was glorified? This is John's way of speaking of Jesus' death and resurrection. It wasn't until after the cross and his suffering and his death and resurrection that this made sense to them. So think about that. How how would that change what it means that Jesus is the king? The crowd was right. He's the king. And yet their their picture of a king, their expectations for a king were incomplete. See, they were expecting Jesus to rule and reign and be victorious over evil and kick out the Romans He's like, yeah, I'm the king, and yes, I'm going to be victorious, but it's not going to be until I go to the cross and die and rise again that you'll really see what this means. Again, they had their expectations for a Messiah. And their picture of a Messiah was a conquering king, a victorious king. Their picture of a Messiah didn't include suffering and death and rejection Thank you very much. And that's why, as Jesus goes to the cross, they all scatter. They're like, I guess we were wrong. Because this doesn't look like victory. Because he's going to the cross as a criminal and being executed by Rome. So clearly, he's not the guy. Let's go home. 
So they got part of it right. But it wasn't until later that they saw the full picture. Because like by definition, the Messiah wins. By definition, the Messiah reigns. They wanted a king, but not a cross. And so verse 16 points out that there were incomplete. And it's at this point we would be wise to consider our own expectations of Jesus and the kingdom he brings. Because what we often do today is we expect or think that, again, Jesus is going to bring a kingdom that aligns very well with our assumptions and values and priorities. Amen. Right? Jesus has. And I have my agenda and my passion project and my political ideology, and Jesus is the spokesperson for my cause. So Jesus, come. Yes, bring your kingdom. And this happens on the left and on the right, politically speaking, okay? We all do this. We kind of selectively can look at our Bible and see the passages that support our cause or paint Jesus in the light that we're most comfortable with. You know, here's how I view the world. Here's what I value. Here's my priorities. And Jesus, it'd be great if you could kind of like fall in line with those things and fit really neatly into my life. Jesus, I want you to fit into my kind of predetermined mold of what I think you should be like. And friends, can we, can we have an honest conversation here, real, real talk for a moment? This is probably the biggest challenge in ministry today, Amen. is that in, in preaching Scripture and, and sharing the gospel, people have no problem with the, like, hey, Jesus loves you and died for you, and he, you know, he wants to be with you. Everyone's like, oh, great, thank you, that's amazing. Uh, but then it's like, but, and, and he's going to call you to, to do some things differently in your life and think about things in your life a little bit differently. And that's where it's like, whoa. Right? And we say, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus if he, he meets me on my terms. And Do this. I want to follow a God who says this or, or view things that way. Bold and audacious to disagree with us. Affinity and connection with our political ideology than we do brothers and sisters in Christ, and that still baffles me how that's possible. Or things like loving our enemies, extending forgiveness. No one's exempt from this. But I think it was Tim Keller who said, you know, if God is real, and there's this all-powerful, all-knowing 
creator God, wouldn't you expect him to disagree with you on some things? Like, wouldn't it just make sense if there's this all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, holy being, wouldn't, it ex- wouldn't you expect him to see things differently than like, in some places? That, that would make sense. It would be absolutely, it would be silly to expect God to just line up perfectly with all our preconceived notions and assumptions. And again, we're made in the image of God, but someone has once said that we often want to return the favor and make God in our own image. And we don't want to worship the real God of Scripture, but we want to worship a God who, again, looks like us and thinks like us and doesn't make us uncomfortable or make us change. But the question in front of us then is, again, will we join Jesus' kingdom or will we, will we expect him to fight for our own? Will we join Jesus' kingdom or will we expect him to fight for our kingdom and our cause? And friends, I really encourage you to sit with that for a minute and, and consider what that would mean for you. Again, I say this pretty regularly when there's like a confrontational point in the text that this is for, for you, for us, not just them, you know? Like, again, it's, it's tempting to hear passages like this or points like this and be like, oh, this is so good for them to hear. You know, those sorts of people need to hear this, and I'm so glad, Pastor, that you're telling them. But again, we're all potentially guilty of this, and so we really need to look at our own hearts and say, Lord, how am I guilty of placing my expectations on you rather than letting you set the agenda and meeting you on your terms and saying, Lord, where you lead, I, I will follow. It's me that needs to change, not you. So notice Jesus shows us that he's the king, but he's establishing a different kind of kingdom. One that does not first come through external change or power over his enemies, but internal transformation and death for his enemies. And Jesus shows us that, hey, your biggest problem is not out there. It's not the government or it's not persecution that the church would face or it's not, you know, people you don't like or make life difficult for you. It's not the Romans, you know, for them. Your biggest problem is your sin and the condition of your heart. And so Jesus comes and says, to establish my kingdom, first we need to deal with sin and the human heart. And so he goes to the cross. And he carries the consequences of our sin upon himself, the punishment that we deserve for our sin upon his shoulders, dying in our place, sacrificing himself for us. And this is the heart of the good news. It's not that... Jesus is going to go take care of all that bad stuff out there in the world. He, he will. But, but first, he's going to deal with the bad stuff in our hearts and cleanse us and, and forgive us and justify us, not through our own righteousness, but through faith in him and his righteousness then given to us. So I encourage you today, if you're here and you, you've never put your faith in Jesus on his terms, said, Lord, I will trust in you. Lord, I will follow you. That that today could be a day where you place your faith in him and receive the gospel and turn from your sin 
and trust in Jesus as your Savior. The cross, we see, is the way that Jesus is enthroned, the way he establishes his kingdom, his victory over sin and death. Can we just pause for a second and consider how, how beautiful that is, this king that we serve? A king who is willing, because of his love for us, to, to die for us? Again, authority can be a tricky thing for a lot of us. Authority and obedience and dealing with things like that. That can be, you know, we're Americans. We like you know, we, we left England and kings behind to come and, you know, do our own thing. So, like, deep in the American DNA is, like, authority. Urgh, don't like it. You know, isn't Schoolhouse Rock, anybody? No more kings? You know the song, right? We're like, yeah, thank you, Jordan, right? And so it's, it's hard for us. Let's be honest. It's hard for us to, to humble ourselves, to surrender, to submit to. And, and yet, here we see how good this king is. That it's not just about, hey, you know, surrender to me and, and bow the knee because you should, although that's true, but also look at what I've done for you. I'm not just a king comfortable and far away and have my comforts and power and do whatever I want to do, but I, I drew near to you. I came and poured out my very life for you. I died in your place to forgive you and bring you back to relationship with me. And so when we see a king like that, how could we not want to serve him and worship him and in joyful response give him our very lives? Notice how the passage ends in verse 17 through 19. It says, Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. It's so interesting. I mean, the word is spreading. People are responding, coming to see Jesus. And you see the, the leaders are threatened. This is getting us nowhere. This isn't going well. We don't like what we're seeing. And isn't it ironic? The whole world has gone after him, they say. And it's ironic because they say that as if it's a bad thing. Everybody's believing in this Jesus. And they're frustrated by it when really it should be cause for celebration. Because after all, he's the savior of the world, of all who had placed their trust in him. The whole world has gone after him. The question is, will we join them? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, worship you this morning. Uh, you are the King and Savior of the world. And Lord, we want to repent of our hard hearts and our selfish ways and our, um, our tendency to place our expectations on you to do things our way rather than our humble willingness to follow you wherever you lead. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd give us soft hearts to trust you, to surrender to you, to order our lives in such a way that it honors you and aligns with your word. We pray, Lord, that you would yeah, help us 
lay our expectations down and instead come to you on, on your terms. Believing that your way and relationship with you is so much better than anything else we could find elsewhere. Lord Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.